gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I am Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And this week, we have Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura Berenger, on to discuss their book, A Church Called Tobe, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And we're really excited to have them. This fits right into some of the topics that we've been talking about. So, just before we get started, could you each share just a little bit about yourselves and, and your background? Well, thank you, um, Colleen and Rachel. I appreciate uh, this invitation uh, to talk with you and um, for us to talk with you. And I am a professor of New Testament. I've been teaching nearly 40 years. I started at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for 12 years then 17 years at North Park University where I taught undergrads, and now I'm in my, well, I think it's my eighth or ninth year uh, at Northern Seminary, and um, I don't have any plans of changing institutions, and our seminary is thriving right now, so we're excited about that, and uh, I'm an author, I'm ordained, I do some preaching, um, and obviously you've invited us because of, of the writing that I did with Laura. And I, um, my day job is quite different than the topic that which we're speaking about today. I am a primary grades teacher. I've been teaching for over 20 years. I graduated from Wheaton College with a degree in elementary education in 1999. And I've been teaching first graders, second graders, and kindergartners ever since. Um, so you'll see as we start talking that my my place with this book is is an unlikely one, um, but one that I feel very blessed um, to have been given the opportunity. So I also thank you for having us today. It's really neat to see a father and daughter write a book together. And I know that you both went to Willow Creek and a lot of people in our audience may be familiar with um, the situation that happened at Willow Creek. But why did you write this book? Well, originally, this was a book that I thought my dad would write. Um, when the story about Willow Creek broke and my dad started blogging about it, I call it <laughs> kind of went Christian viral, his blog posts about the story and about supporting the women. And one of them was titled Willow Creek, Your Time Is Now. Well, my dad started getting some, you know, getting interest from publishers, one asked him to write a book about Willow Creek. And I got excited at that point because I felt like, well, I could write it for you. <laughs> not really. I mean, this is not my, I'm not an author by trade. But um, originally, I thought that it was something that that he could do. 
um, and that I would encourage him along the way. So dad, you can tell how the book came about. Yeah, we, um, um, Laura, as soon as the story broke, Laura and her husband, Mark and Chris, my wife and I had lots of conversations. We just, uh, we went back and forth all the time. And, uh, Laura would tell me something was going on at Willow and I would respond. And before long, uh, I had, uh, I, I think by writing, I was in an airport and I wrote out uh, my thoughts about Willow Creek. I think it's probably about a thousand words. Maybe it was 2000. I'm not sure. I don't have, I imagine I have the document somewhere. And um, then we, I got away from it. Uh, Laura and Mark continued to follow it. Uh, I went with students to the Mediterranean to visit sites of the, of the New Testament and then when we came back, it was in June, and the story broke in March, but it was in middle to late June that I, I called Laura when we got back and asked her um, what was going on with the Willow story, and she said nothing. And I, I have to say, Colleen, uh, I felt pretty convicted that Willow was doing nothing but stalling to try to wear the women down so that they would be silenced and their story would go away. So I thought I, I have a responsibility to do what I can so that these women's stories can be told truthfully and they need to have a platform because these women were pretty well known, um, but they didn't have platforms uh, like mine. So I wrote a blog post and uh, Laura mentioned this. This was the first one. I don't even remember what it was called. Um, it really... Um, it went, it went right through the, the whole place at Willow Creek in South Barrington and shook the place up a bit. And I was really glad of that. I mean, I wasn't out to get Willow Creek, but I, I thought they had to be held accountable for the way they were treating the women. So then uh, after that, I wasn't planning on writing a book, but frankly, uh, uh, Laura didn't want to write the book, but she sure wanted me to write the book. So she kept pushing me to do something. And then I, I told the publisher, no, cause I'm not a church historian. They wanted me to write the story of Willow Creek. I said, no, I can't do that. But, um, I read a book on Hitler and the churches after Hitler. This is one of my areas of interest. And, um, the way the German pastors responded to their complicity in the Holocaust and in world war two, bore such striking parallels to how churches and pastors in the United States were responding to accusations that it became obvious to me, and I know both of you know some theology, that some Augustinian anthropology needed to be involved here of recognizing what humans do when they're confronted with truth that exposes them for sinfulness. And that became a chapter that we call false narratives. The parallels with the pastors uh, in Germany and the United States, is, it's pretty simple, is that when human beings are confronted with truth that is uncomfortable and revealing and exposing of their own sinful deeds, uh, that most of them deny it, most of them lie, most of them accuse and blame, and... Uh, so I started taking notes on this, and then we were together at Christmas time, and uh, Laura and Mark were talking about Will. I said, I, I think I have an idea. And at that point, I didn't know where the book would go, but I knew we had something to say. So I started tinkering with it. And then we, I said, you know, the book has to be positive. We're not going to just write an expose. That's been done by the newspapers. And I latched on to this concept of goodness or toe. Uh, because it resonated with so many pastors and leaders who wrote to me when I blogged about goodness. So that's where uh, the story of the book uh, got started and how it grew into what it is. Uh, our goal was not expose. We do have a, a few stories uh, that people don't know about or didn't know about until they've read the book. Uh, but most of it is stuff that is in print. And um, we wanted to expose a bit so that we could point toward churches needing to develop a culture of tov and goodness so that 
so that women won't be abused and lying won't become a part of the cultural instinct. Well, I um, really appreciated your book. I, I was just thinking it's kind of funny because I, uh, I got it as an audio book to listen to while I was working on some things and traveling. And um, it, it's funny because, you know, that I associate the voice of the, of the narrator. And it's, of course he sounds nothing like either of you. So it, <laughs> it's a little bit like, no, that's I, I haven't source. heard it. Uh, we weren't sent a copy. I haven't seen one anyway. It's yeah, really we, nice. Yeah, we didn't even know that we had an audio book. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, until recently. Yeah, so that's, oh, it, it, is, it was yeah. very well done. He does a good job with the with the narrative and the story. So, um, but I wanted to ask you. You touched on it a little bit. What does the title of the book mean? A, a church called Tov. What is Tov? Okay, Tov is the Hebrew word for good and goodness. So in Genesis chapter 1, well, when the Lord creates, he looks at, the, let's say, the sun and the, the stars and the moon and says, this is Tov. And when he's all done creation, he looks at, he looks at all and he says, this is Tov Ma'od, or very good. So Tov is a word that describes um, goodness, uh, beauty. But uh, the Bible tells us in Psalm 119 that the Lord is Tov, and that everything the Lord does is Tov, that the design of the Lord is Tov, and that, uh, you know, um, we are not Tov because of sinfulness. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, there is no one Tov, no, not one, but because of God's grace and because of the Spirit, Jesus says a tov tree produces tov fruit. And the Apostle Paul says in the, in the fruit of the Spirit that one of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness or tov. So tov is a comprehensive, uh, I often call it a master category in the Bible for what God wants of us and what he created us to be. It means goodness. So a quote, a quote from the book, never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gradually transform who you are. So how, how does our church's culture influence us? I love oh, that quote. That's a great quote. Go ahead, Dad. Okay. One of the things that um, I said to Lauren Mark well before even blog posts, is that there is a culture at work in a church that will determine whether Willow Creek, whether Harvest Bible Chapel, whether the Sovereign Grace Churches, whether the Southern Baptist Churches, whether the Roman Catholic Churches respond properly to allegations. And um, work culture is very important. Peter Drucker, the famous management guy says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what he meant by that is you can have all the strategies and the plans and the plots that you want, but if your culture is toxic, it will, uh, it will eat up all your strategies. David Brooks is the one who said, never underestimate the significance of the environment or the culture. And that is uh, simply this, is that if you, uh, if you work in a church, if you work in a business, um, if you live in a family, my wife's a psychologist and knows family systems and family systems therapy very well, is, is that you learn to fit into that culture. In fact, most of the time, you're not even aware you're fitting into that culture. Over time, that culture begins to shape us and turn us into the kind of person that fits in that culture. So what we needed, I, I said right away with Lauren, Mark, and Chris, is we need to focus on church culture rather than just a pastor or, you know, preaching or strategies or mission, whatever, uh, vision statements. We need to see if there is a culture at work that can accomplish that strategy. And I think a lot of churches are obsessed with mission and vision statements. In other words, with strategy. But they don't have the culture that is needed for that strategy or that mission or that vision to be accomplished. So culture is an environment 
in which we live that shapes us and forms us into the kinds of people that exist comfortably in that environment. Now, the prophets of the Old Testament were in a culture in which they were uncomfortable, and so they spoke up and spoke out. Jesus, the same way in the Galilee, the Apostle Paul had to speak out against some of the churches that weren't living up to the kind of culture that needed to be created. So that's why we um, we emphasize culture formation. And uh, the other thing uh, that is important about culture is that while we can form, think we can form cultures, let's say by practicing certain things, teaching certain things, telling certain stories, behaving in a certain way, over time that culture begins to influence us. It works backward on us in such a way that we are formed and shaped and modeled into that culture. Very important concept for churches today, and uh, it's, it's an area that I think needs a lot of work. And I can tell you as a seminary professor, we don't talk about this enough in our classes. We, we sort of think that if we teach the right things, that people will accept what we teach. First of all, we sort of expect that they'll listen and then accept and then do, and then everything is going hunky-dory. But that's not the way it works. The culture sometimes is resistant to what is said, and sometimes the preacher is resistant to the culture that is even better than the pastor or the preacher himself or herself. You notice that, too, when there's maybe there's a, a fallen pastor and the pastor is removed from his or her position, but the the culture is still active and hasn't changed. Decisions are being made or not made. Um, restoration is not happening. And you wonder why, you know, now that the pastor is gone, why are these things still happening? Because it's a much larger problem than just the one leader at the yeah. front church. It's a cultural problem. I can um, certainly say I've seen that happen in churches um, where, you know, people changed, leadership changed, leaders were removed, things happened that you would, people left, but the culture of the church remained and continued to influence any attempt to change it. And it was it's kind of fascinating in, in church that I can think of that I've known, you know, 30 years watching it and, um, you know, I keep hoping better things for it. And, but you can see that there's this culture at work that's deeper than any one person or individual or personality. Um, sorry, if you hear my dog bark too, he should be outside. One of the things that uh, in, in your book, you have, you know, kind of the, the first part of it, which addresses recognizing a toxic culture, and then you move into, you know, how to create this Tove culture. But what are some things that you can talk about, uh, about how to recognize a toxic church culture? Um, we have questions from people at times from their church, like, well, we see this or that, and you know, how do we know? How would you address that for someone who asked the question? Well, I would first of all, um, compliment them for their discernment, because in my experience, I, and we left Willow Creek before the story about Bill Hybels broke in the Tribune. We, we were gone for some time before that happened, but I did not recognize the toxicity, the elements of a toxic, I didn't recognize the red flags until I was gone and experienced a church that is non-celebrity, that is the pastor knows my name. I, I could continue with, with the traits of it. But um, so I think it's quite for my, in my experience, I think it's quite remarkable that a person is discerning enough when they're in it to be able to, to stop and say something doesn't feel right. And then to speak up and do something about it personally. And, and um there's another side to this is some people experience, let's say the rough side of a pastor in a church or the rough side of a church's culture and are scared to death to speak up. So it is, it is absolutely the case 
that most of these toxic church cultures are not visible on Sunday morning when most people, the vast majority of the people in the church, uh, encounter the church itself. Um, but there are people behind the curtain who have experienced things, and they are often afraid. So I would say I agree with Laura. Um, uh, kudos to the people who begin to discern this. Um, the second thing is, I would say, people who are behind the curtain who begin to experience toxicity, power, fear, narcissism, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, etc., cetera, uh, gaslighting, all these things that we talk about in the book. When they experience those things, they, they have to be, Diane Langberg taught us this, is they have to be in a, a condition of life healthy enough to be able to have the confidence to speak up because most of the time they get blasted. Their reputation is put on the line, if not ruined, and they are uh, humiliated and shamed by what occurs and they feel powerless and depressed. And let's face it, churches, as an institution, pastors as leaders, preachers as speakers, speak for God. Uh, they, they may not like to admit it, but people perceive them as leaders in a spiritual life, and they uh, trust these people to give them discernment and evaluation. So uh, it is very difficult uh, when people recognize it, when they're even behind the curtain to be able to speak up. So, and so many people that we've talked to since this book has come out and we've talked to far more people than we anticipated. And in fact, in some senses, more than we want to because the stories are negative and sometimes so depressing um, is that it is, um, it is more pervasive than it should be. And it is more difficult to speak up than people think uh, it is. And we should never criticize people for not speaking up sooner because we don't understand the fear and the implications in life if they do speak up. This is uh, astounding. I, I have friends. I have a friend who told me he was at he was at a major church who told his wife when he came home one day, he said, if I go missing launch an investigation. I'm afraid they're going to kill me. Mm. This is, uh, this is frightening. And this is, this is where some people who have been behind the curtain and seen the abuse, uh, are actually living. So I'm, Rachel, uh, you're familiar with Rachel Dunhollander. She yes. blew the whistle on Larry Nasser. She said it was harder to come forward in her, ch I'm mincing her words, but it was harder for her to come forward about abuse in her church than it was Larry Nasser, a, a gymnast, you know, a, a well-known famous doctor of gymnastics, mm -hmm. that coming forward in the church is one of the least safe places to do so for victims of abuse. So... Mm -hmm. That's part of why we wrote this book is to show that, you know, let's create cultures of healing. The church should be a refuge for the abused, not where we close ranks and call them liars to protect ourselves. Yeah, we just talked about that on our episode last week. We've had Rachel Den Hollander on, and we talked about the very thing you guys are talking about, how difficult it is to come forward, especially in the church. Mm -hmm. How, isn't, how that is, sad, isn't that sad, though? Oh, it's, it's, heart, so sad. it's heartbreaking. And um, one of the things I said is when I started this podcast, almost from the very beginning, I started having women reach out to me and um, tell me their stories. And there was, there was actually some women. We have a Facebook group with almost 7,000 women. And there was some women that um, kind of during the whole Me Too finally felt like, okay, I think I can talk about this now. But they were scared. And then, you know, they might talk about it privately, but they're still not yeah. Yeah. in a place to go public. 
But how is Matthew 18 misused in many toxic churches? And then also some other common tactics like false narratives, gaslighting. Um, we have talked on this podcast about abuse somewhat. We've talked about gaslighting and DARVO and narcissism. And so these are some things that our listeners would be familiar with. You know, the Matthew 18 one really, really, that was part of the impetus of encouraging my dad to write because the misuse of Matthew 18 is what got the journey started for me um, with our book writing partially. But what we had, I am a lay person, right? I'm, I'm a teacher by trade. I just knew that when I heard Willow Creek say, we want them to be biblical and follow, follow Matthew 18. And by them, meaning the women, implying the women were being unbiblical by going public. It did not. All I knew is that in my spirit, something was really disturbing to me with that statement. And now I understand it because I had my dad, a theologian that I could call and ask him, you know, what does this mean? This is what Willow Creek is saying, that the women are not being biblical because they're not following Matthew 18. And he was able to explain it to Mark and me. And that's when we encouraged him to blog about it because it we needed a theologian to explain the misuse of scripture. So dad, maybe you can explain it. Yeah. The way you explain well, it to us. Here's the way uh, churches frequently use Matthew 18. It basically tells people, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Now, if they don't, you can bring in two or three, but the process is first, one-on-one, secondly, one versus two or three, and then third, you go to the church. Um, When Willow Creek used this, their point was these women must first go talk to Bill privately. Well, think about this. A victim of sexual abuse has been victimized and they should not be forced and coerced and biblically justified or legitimated, however you want to describe it, of going to talk to that perpetrator of sexual violence against them one-on-one and only then have to go two or three. So I said, you know, that text is important. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of New Testament professors over my life, and I think we would all agree on this. Um, That text has value for certain contexts, but not for everything, and certainly not for this context. There is a text in Deuteronomy that actually is along this line with a completely different approach. The other text they use is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where it says you cannot accuse an overseer, elder, whatever, um, apart from two or three witnesses. So the argument was these women shouldn't be going forward because they don't have two or three witnesses. It's just one. They shouldn't be going to the church. Well, Here again, how many males commit sexual violence against women in the front of other people? I mean, this is stuff that doesn't happen. So you have to ask, why are people appealing to these two texts? And to me, it was very clear because they could control the situation and silence the women and control the church's reputation. So I immediately said, you have to go to Deuteronomy where you will discover that a woman who was taken advantage of in the country was believed, and the male who didn't confess was not believed. And I checked this out with a couple Old Testament friends, uh, scholar friends, and uh, I, I think that that's a text that should be used as well. And I wouldn't say we have to find a biblical text for every little thing that we have to do, but I found the use of Matthew 18 nothing short of preposterous and abusive and uh, re-victimizing the people who had been victimized already. So I I don't know, uh, Colleen, if that answers your question, 
but that's that's the way I look at it. No, I think that was that was very very helpful. I know that when we had Diane Langberg on too, she talked about um, the tendency to protect the institution and yeah. not not really be Jesus to the people. Yeah, she's right. She knows this field better than anybody in the United States. And what I've also what I learned from Diane. I didn't know it at the time, but now I understand that silencing women by telling them to follow Matthew 18 is actually spiritual abuse. All I knew at the time is that it didn't feel right, but now I understand that they were they were using the verse as a weapon to silence people to protect their image. Mm-hmm. Coercive. Yeah. 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 You know, I like, and you said this in the the beginning when you talked about writing this book is that you wanted this book to be a positive book, right? You know, it's necessary to talk about the negative and point it out and address it, but you wanted it to be focused on the positive. So what would you, how would you explain to someone who hasn't read the book yet? What does a Tove church culture look like? Well, it is, um, it is a fact that we, and I've, I've openly said this a number of times is that, what what we were what we were doing was looking at toxic church cultures and toxic leaders and posing biblical categories of character over against them i think you could find 25 characteristics of a tove culture in a church and uh, most of them would be what we talk about but these aren't the seven one and are the only seven, uh, but these are the seven that we think speak most directly into the kinds of church cultures that are toxic. And we focused on um, both, uh, this is an interesting expression. In the Old Testament, the word tov, good, is often posed against evil or ra. So tov and ra belong together. What I found in studying this, was that in good church cultures, good tov church cultures have formed natural capacities to discern and resist ra or toxicity. Good, uh, you know, we use Mr. Rogers as an example. Mr. Rogers had a radar for detecting things that were against what was needed for children because he was so committed to what he knew children knew and needed and what was good for them, that he could detect anything that was wrong. And it's an amazing story how he recognized what advertising was doing to children. So he resisted advertising. And it's that cost him a lot of money. Eventually he lost TV audience because of it. So we, we, we look at empathy. A good church culture is empathic toward people. It nurtures grace, and grace here is defined in a large sense. And um, I'm a particularly strong fan of John Barclay's great book on grace. He's got two of them now. And um, uh, a toad culture puts people first, so it has empathy, it has grace, and it puts people first. And therefore, it resists narcissism, it resists fear cultures, and it resists institution creep, where institutions begin to take over instead of people. Uh, at the core of a Tove culture is a church that tells the truth and resists false narratives. And a good Tove church nurtures justice, doing the right thing, and resists loyalty culture. We, we found... Laura was particularly vigilant on finding some of these stories, and she found stories of loyalty one after another, where pastors were demanding loyalty, and it meant not doing the right thing. And so we are committed to thinking that a Tove church nurtures justice as the right thing. Uh, A Tove church also nurtures service rather than building up the celebrity character of the pastor. And then ultimately the summary statement of it all includes all, it includes empathy, grace, putting people first, 
telling the truth, justice, and service, is that it's Christ-like. It looks like Jesus. People experience the love of God in Christ when they come to this church, and therefore they resist the leader culture, which focuses upon the pastor as the focus of the church rather than Jesus. So those are our seven habits of Tov in what we call the circle of Tov. I don't, I don't know if you have seen this going around, but there's a popular teacher that is somebody that we've been outspoken against that has a series, and one of the things in the series is something like the sin of empathy, and he thinks empathy is wrong. But can you talk about why empathy is important? My goodness, that's a hard thing for me to hear is that some pastor is against empathy. Empathy is to be able to feel into another person's feelings. Um, it is to experience, in, in, you know, at some level vicariously what they're experiencing. To me, what we have to, have to do is root our ideas in the Bible, and I'll just use two passages. One of the great passages about Moses is that God says that he's rich in mercy, and compassion. And then Jesus is frequently described as someone who is compassionate. And the, and the word means, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it has the idea of having um, a gut, an inner stomach re, uh, turmoil over the experience of another person's pain. Other words used for Jesus is full of mercy He's full of grace. He's full of love. So empathy is the, is the uh, gift of God's grace in our life to transform us into people. When they see someone suffering, is to respond to that person the way God responds to that person who sees a person in need and reaches out to help them. So the story of the Good Samaritan is a brilliant example of empathy on the part of Jesus. I'm just, I'm stunned here, Colleen, that any pastor, I don't know, I've never heard this one, so. So at one point you write in the book that, that Tove is ordinary. Uh, and I loved that, and I love what you write, wrote around that, but could you explain what does that mean and why is it important that Tove is ordinary? Um. You know, we, I had a couple people comment, make that comment too, that, that that came from my dad. You wrote that in the book, but that that's encouraging to them because um, we see a lot in celebrity churches where there will be a, a service, um, like an act of service where somebody does something for another person and all of a sudden it's on the big screen and then they're getting applauded for it, which kind of goes against should we really be applauding somebody for their service? Like, shouldn't it be done quietly, privately, you know, where only God knows about it. Um, And so it was encouraging for folks to hear that my simple act of service is, doesn't have to be met with applause and fame. It's, it's ordinary. It's, you know, my neighbors are sick. So I watch their child. It's, it's, um, Dad, why don't you talk more about it? Yeah, that's, this is, a, I used to try to get Laura to write a book for kids called Ordinary is Okay. Mm. Um, John Ortberg one time said in a service, I heard him say this, that there was a test. I think it was done by uh, the, the woman professor of sociology at San Diego State University, where she's, or University of San Diego, who said uh, 90% of high school graduates think they're above average. And this is, this is, you know, this filters into grade inflation. Most people, you know, when I went to grade school, a lot of students in my class got C's because they were average. And you had to be above average to get a B. Now, that meant that 50% probably of the class got C's and maybe 25% of the class got B's and 25% got A's or something like that. Maybe 10% got A's. 
And um, I've noticed this kind of inflation in teaching college students. I noticed this, that a B was seen by my students as an insult. And I can remember thinking, no, that's above average, but grade inflation has really changed. And uh, ordinary is what most of us are. And it's okay. And ordinary behaviors are the normal way of serving other people, of living out the gospel and embodying Christ-likeness. It's ordinary to shovel your neighbor's snow. You don't have to get some kind of big credit for that. And it's ordinary to make a meal for someone who is sick or their family. Uh, This happens in our church uh, when someone gets sick or someone has a baby or needs special attention. Um, that people in the church gather together and they make meals and they make sure that the person gets it. This is ordinary things. Nobody is looking for a long commendation in the church bulletin because they um, took someone out for coffee one day. That this this is the way ordinary people serve other ordinary people is that we just do ordinary things. For the, for the sake of others. It's so important. My husband and I have been having so many conversations um, as I read through your book um, since he went to both Willow Creek and then to Harvest um, with James McDonald and just talking about how do these things happen. And one of the things we've been talking a lot about is celebrity pastors. What are the dangers of church or Christian celebrity culture? Well, um, a lot. Chuck DeGroot, <laughs> Chuck DeGroot, DeGroot has a wonderful book about narcissism coming to the church. And one of the characteristics of normally perceived successful pastors is a sense of grandiosity. And that is that they think they're going to accomplish great things and they want to accomplish great things. And they talk about doing great things. And when things happen that are good, they tell everybody that it's great. And before long, we've built a culture of public applause. And I, this is something that really irritates me. The first time I ever experienced applause in a church was at Willow Creek. And it just struck me as weird. I thought, now that's what happens in a basketball game or I guess at a theater or a a concert, we don't applause someone telling a story about the church or someone giving a sermon. And all of a sudden it it just struck me as um, inappropriate, but we have developed a whole sense of celebrity and we have raised the models of celebrity pastors as the ideal model that if you do what we do, your church will be 5,000, you'll drive um, a Cadillac, you'll be able to fly everywhere you want first class. And the next thing you know, we've completely ruined the image of Jesus, that a follower of Jesus is someone who serves others, and that you are not to be like the Gentiles who lord it over one another but you're to be like me who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So we have celebrity pastors who have become heroes. And instead of uh, praising or valuing service and humility and character like Tove, we have begun to um, applaud greatness So um, President Trump's hat, Make America Great Again, is about greatness. And, of course, a lot of people have had fun with that. But greatness is not a desire of a true follower of Jesus. Jesus is the one who is to be great. And we are servants, unprofitable servants, uh, the Gospel of Luke tells us. You know, a side note. Um, Mike Bro is a pastor, a former one of Willow Creek, in fact, read an early manuscript of our book for us. And he gave us feedback that he felt that we were 
too hard, and it was good feedback, that we were too hard on mega churches and celebrity culture. And we softened it a bit in the book. Um, but it's also, I think, important and worth saying that there are some megachurch pastors who do not fall temptation, do not fall to the temptations of being a celebrity and the culture of celebrity. And then there are some pastors of small churches who do. So it's not necessarily about the size of the church, but as we've studied and researched, there are particular temptations that come with being known and applauded you know, what kind of character can withstand that week after week feeling like mm-hmm. you're more important than other people? You have to be a really strong character to resist it, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, you're right. How would you encourage us and those who are listening? How can we create or promote a Tove culture in our churches? Well, we keep getting asked this question. So it's obviously something we didn't talk enough about. Um, I think we have to have Tove as a vision, to use Dallas Willard's category, vision, um, uh, and we have to have a, a means of getting there. Uh, um, I think that we have to have a vision of character of individual Christians that are marked by Tove that then becomes, because of the accumulation of Toveness in a church, becomes the characteristics uh, the character of the church itself. So I, I say this um, um, all the time, Rachel. I say, first, you have to be Tove. So I need to work on being Tove. And secondly, I need to get in a circle, a pocket of other people who want to practice Tove. And we need to learn as a group how to be Tove and then hope that other pockets of Tove can form in a church so that the church culture can be transformed. In one of my classes last summer, or this summer, I guess, last summer, I had a student who did a PhD in organizational transformation. And I was talking about Tove in class. And uh, I asked him what he thought. I said, well, tell me what you think of what I'm saying. I said, we're, we're on the same page, I think. He said, well, I really like your ideas. You're using all the wrong terms that we use in the business world. But he said, I like your ideas. But here's the thing you need to know. In organizational transformation, we teach that it takes seven years to transform the culture of an organization. And I went, oh, boy, how many people in churches are committed to a process of seven years? And, it, you know, it, um, you, you can't do this by a pastor saying we're going to be told. You can't do this by one person saying this is told. This has to be organic. It has to be a commitment. You have to be resilient and vigilant. And it takes, you know, the the majority of the church to transform the culture. So it's a slow process of commitment of being Tove, being around Tove people and encouraging others to be Tove and hoping and praying that God's grace will awaken enough people in the church to get it into a Tove culture. And, you know, we, we tell stories about bad churches and toxic church cultures, but I have been, I'm privileged to travel around the world and speak. I've been in a lot of Tove culture churches, and there are a lot of them. And I've I, I had students who are Tove pastors, and you can tell by their character, by their prayer life, by the way they live, that they're going to do the right thing, and they're going to be Tove. So I think there's a lot of these Tove churches around, but they're not getting enough attention today. And... Uh, we want to draw attention to them. As my dad was talking, I was just thinking of um, an example that I wrote about in the book about Tate's Creek and Robert Cunningham and how he was such an example of Tove and how I actually felt emotional when I was reading his story for the first time because I just, I felt like, you know, these women at Willow Creek, we care about them so much. They're friends of our family and 
what, how different the story could have been, how different the fallout, the relational, the anger, how it, how different it could have been had the church handled, had the Willow Creek elders handled abuse allegations the way Robert Cunningham and Tate's Creek did. There are examples of Tove ways to respond to abusive situations within the church. And he's one of them. They're, they are out there. Yeah, I'm glad that you both mentioned that because I know that for some people, maybe they've only seen um, some to- yeah. toxic church cultures, but there are good church cultures out there too. And of course, none of them are perfect, but um, you know, I, th- I think about one time when I was rushed to the hospital in the middle of the night and had emergency surgery at about 630 in the morning. And I'm about ready to go in. And they said, do you want us to call anybody? I said, call my pastor. And when I got out of surgery, he was there sitting with my husband, praying mm. with me. When I got home from the hospital, um, the women from, you know, a few days later, the women from church were cooking meals and doing my laundry. And, you know, there are, for me, that was just such an expression of love when you guys talked about those ordinary things um they -hmm. loved us through this very difficult time Mm -hmm. and there are examples out there i do want our listeners to know that we're going to link the book in the um episode notes and we'll we'll see if we can link the audiobook also i know some some of our listeners some of our moms especially like the audiobook options and um, it's also available on Kindle. So all, all of the ways that people prefer their um, reading materials are available out there. We, we really appreciate you joining us. I think this was just so helpful. Yes, thank you. Very well, thank much. you very much. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for having us. It was really nice to be with you. Yeah.